Thank you, Nisi and Esther. Appreciate that. Um, what a beautiful offering. Your gifts and talents to the Lord and an expression of worship. I think we should all do that, maybe. <laughs> Might take a little practice. Uh, Esther makes it look pretty effortless, um, but it takes a great deal of concentration. And it's a beautiful thing uh, to watch somebody worship the Lord in that way. Appreciate that. It's a great reminder of how, really it's a great reminder of how it ties into our text this morning um, in how do we love God. Not just with our minds, there's more to it than that. Our whole bodies need to be behind it, but that's getting ahead of myself. As you know, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 22 this morning. The, the Gospels, as you know, tells the story of the life and the death of Christ. And like any story, you have your protagonists and your antagonists. And if you were to tell somebody the Gospels tell the story of the life and death of Christ and they've never heard it before, they might wonder, I wonder how he dies. Because usually if you t just tell the story about the life of Christ, you wonder how he lives. You tell the story about the life and the death of Christ, you wonder how he dies. Well, part of Jesus's story includes his enemies. And at this point, his greatest enemies are two groups of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they play the antagonists in this story, especially the closer we get to the cross. They're constantly doubting him, scheming against him, picking him apart, criticizing him, questioning everything he does, everything that he says. We've learned already that they're envious of him. They're jealous of the sway and the power that he has over the people because that's theirs and they don't want to give it up. And so the more that Jesus becomes popular, and the more followers that he has, the angrier they become. And the more they hate him and they hate him. Perhaps in your own experience, you will know that when we really set our, an affection of hate, an emotion of hate over somebody, when we allow ourselves to hate someone, they can't do anything right. It just gets to the point to where they can't do anything right. Even the greatest act would be criticized or ridiculed, totally unfelt by us because we have allowed ourselves to hate a person. Nothing is appreciated. Everything they do is going to be interpreted somehow in a negative light. And that's where the Jewish leaders are now in regards to Jesus. He can't do anything right. He's just a constant threat. So all the miracles and all the good and all the truth, they have not penetrated that hard, hard heart. These two groups are interesting because um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, politically, they agree on very little. They take two different positions politically, and really they take two different positions theologically. And we've seen a little bit of that already. One of them, believe, Pharisees, believe in the resurrection and morals and the importance of the goodness of life and righteousness and the 
Sadducees are more liberal and loose in their belief and they don't believe in the supernatural and so forth. There's very little that they agree on. And yet, when it comes to hating Christ, they both agree on that. That's something that they they come together on. They want to eliminate him. And they work. I don't know if they realize it or not, but they work as a team to bring him down. And though they have a hatred, they've been self-controlled in the sense that they do not aggressively go after him immediately. They use a more passive, more tactful means. They try to get Jesus to hang himself with his own words. Again, they're trying to make uh, they're trying to pull away the support that he has. And so they pose questions Brilliant questions that are posed in such a way that you can't answer it right. No matter which way you go, people will disrespect you. They're really trying to put him in a group. Because there's lots of different groups and beliefs. And if we could just get him to stay with this group, well, then he just lost the rest of them. The other half or two thirds or however many. So they're always trying to push him in to take a stance on something that will alienate him. And they... Try to corner him with the question about God and taxes and Caesar. And where do our loyalties go? What should we really support? They try to corner him by posing questions about the resurrection and the afterlife. And how does marriage in this life pan out in heaven? I mean, who's married to who? Try to explain that. Jesus was able to... Well, our text will tell us very briefly, basically silences critics. He answers these impossible questions in a way that they probably walked away thinking, I didn't think of that. I shouldn't have asked them that question. And so it gets to the point where they just walk away. They don't even know what to say. Well, the last question was posed to Jesus by the Sadducees. So now it's the Pharisees' turn. Sadducees failed in their mission to corner him. To make him look bad. And so now the Pharisees come. Let's read our text in 22, book of Matthew 34 through 46. And I want to say, um, before I read it, I, in my sermon preparation, I come to this part of the chapter and I think, oh, something easy. Something easy to preach on. The great commandment. I mean, how difficult can these commandments be? And I just have to tell you, by the time I finished my sermon prep, I was thoroughly chastised by God's intention and Jesus's clarification of these commands that we hear so frequently. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. And the prophets. Well, we know the motive behind the Pharisee is not good. It's evil. So, yes, it's a test. It's a trap. But 
how does this question trap him? This is, sounds like a, a good question. And I would like to think we know better, but I would love to think that finally they want to get to the bottom of things. You know, what's the best way to worship you? I have all these commandments. I want to know what's the most important one. So at least I know I'm doing that. We would like to think that it's out of a heart to love God and to worship God and to do God right. And it's not. But how can this particular question go wrong? Well, it turns out that the way that this, by the way, he is a lawyer, he is a profession, uh, professional when it comes to knowing the law. He knows it in and out. So he's tricky. And the way that he wants to try to trap Jesus is it turns out that the scholars of the day, those that took the time to study the law, they'd really get into it. And they were, there was a big debate regarding what is the greatest command? I mean, you've got this one in this book and this one over here and this one of rank and importance. And so they would often debate about um, the greatest command. There were groups as far as who thought it was this one and who thought it was that one and who thought it was. So they, you know, we bring our our preconceived ideas and what's important to us at the table when we're wrestling with things. And that's what they did. And so sometimes the debates about what is the great command would be very hotly contested. People had deep convictions about this. And so to answer again, to try to put him in one category where he zeroes in on one command is to alienate him away from all those others that would disagree with him. And Jesus has already said some pretty radical things about the law that they're not used to hearing, challenging things. And so this lawyer wants to continue that process and perhaps trip him up, make trouble for him. But as always, Jesus gives them more, more than they bargained for when they ask a question. And he answers it by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. We know it. How do you love God? What's what's a great commandment? He says it's a great commandment. You love the Lord your God. How do you love him? You love him with your, your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. And then he adds to this. He adds something that even qualifies it more. And he says it's not just a great commandment. It is the foremost commandment. It is the commandment of all commandments, not just a great commandment. As a matter of fact, there could not be a more important commandment than this. All of the other commandments, all of Scripture itself hinges or hangs or dangles, if you will, from this foremost commandment. So he takes it out of just the high level platform that they put it on and puts it on even a higher level of ranking and importance. Jesus, in doing this, I mean, God has already revealed himself, right? In the Old Testament, I mean, that's what they had at that time. God enjoys to reveal himself. He wants to make himself known. Now, not everything. I mean, he has he has a secret will. And there are there are attributes that are incommunicable. And we looked at some of those and we, we have a hard time relating. But for the most part, God wants to be known. And in this answer, 
Jesus is giving them more than they've really even asked for. And I think he is revealing himself. Because to answer this question about a command and make it personal as far as the one who gave the command is to reveal that person's heart. So really, if you were to think about for, for Jesus to say the foremost command is that you love God, he's revealing his heart and his desire. More than that, even the whole design of creation, what was behind it, the, the mode and the method, the motive behind creating things and humanity in the way that he did, the fabric behind that was this, this desire, this will that God's creatures love him, set their affection, set their knowledge, their, their knowing, their intellect, their emotions, their movements, everything as an expression to love God. Jesus makes it clear that the most important thing to him would be to love the right God in the right way. Now, the right way are all the other commandments. And that teaches us also about the right God. So everything of importance is attached to this one command, love God. There should be no question regarding what's important to God. If we have lived but not loved God, then we have lived in disharmony with the order of creation. We've lived in disobedience to God's will. Out of sync. And then he answers another commandment. It's not up here. It's, it's a you know, second. He says it's a second command, but it goes with it. You can't necessarily separate them. They're inextricable. But as far as importance, this is the first one. Then here's the second one. And that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you take those two, just those two, and you you obey those, what you have actually done is you've obeyed them all. You just obeyed all the commandments ever given in Scripture. When you love God and you love your neighbor of yourself and that's how you live, that's how you think, that's how you feel. All the other ones, you just drag them right in behind. You're in conformity with those. That's how important these are. It's amazing. It's kind of hard to talk about them separately, but you do have to kind of pick them apart. Loving God, if we think about this first command. If you say, well, I love God. How might you love God? God's spirit. And sometimes it's hard to see how we love God. You might think, well, I love God in my mind. I think about him all the time. I love him in my heart. I feel his presence. And those things are real and those things are true. And I love him in the way I, I live my life. Or I love him in my prayer closet where I go in secret and nobody sees me spending hours and hours with God. And that's how I love him. I love him in obeying him. Spending time with him. Devoting my life to him. But how does that impact the world? But through the second commandment. In other words, the first commandment, in a sense, can be obeyed or honored in an 
intangible or invisible way because it's so subjective and secret and inward. And it's the second commandment that comes up under that and makes it visible. So when we say when the New Testament or James says, how do you love God? You say you have great faith. You say you great have great love for God, but it can't just stay up in here and it can't just stay in here. How is it manifested? It's manifested through your love for others. So our first commandment is made visible. The truthfulness of it is made visible in our obedience to the second commandment. Loving our neighbor as herself. And of course, Corinthians 13 uh, defines love and you hear that read at weddings frequently. There are attributes to love, what it is and what it isn't that define it. But this love that we have for God is what enables us to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why it's the foremost. You cannot obey command number two in a way that honors God unless you have already abandoned your heart to God with commandment number one. Because it's out of our love and our understanding of God that love flows through us to our neighbors in a God-pleasing way. And one of the things that's important to God and one of the ways that we love God is not just by keeping Him to ourselves, but by manifesting His power and His glory and our gratitude for His work in our lives to others. In other words, sharing Christ, sharing God. Making Him known is a way that we love God. So we can't just love God in secret all the time and in private. It can't just always be here. It has to ooze out of us in how we interact with people in this world. That's what God requires. But He must fill our hearts. He must satisfy our hearts. Because loving our neighbors can be hard work, right? Sometimes, not all the time, but most of the time, at least for me, loving God's pretty easy. I mean, He's blameless. So whenever I come to Him with a whine or a complaint or dissatisfied about something, I always qualify it with, I know you're perfect and it's not your fault, but. So he's, He's not so hard to love. Plus, the demonstration of love that he's given us and his generosity and his grace, his mercy. When you know you've been forgiven and you're so undeserving for us to even have what we have here, this family of believers, the support system, people that are involved and love each other and pray for each other. I mean, every Sunday we share our prayer requests. I mean, we don't deserve this. We only have it. We sing together. We only have it because of how good God is. But loving our neighbors can be pretty hard depending on who your neighbor is, right? We need, and even to do it rightly, even if you have great neighbors, it has to be the love of God flowing through us. Our motive is because we love God so much that I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. He must be our pearl of great price, our our richness. He must be our fortress that we run to to feel safe in our time of trouble. Our all in all. It's hard to give something we do not have. And the way we get love is through God. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? And where do you start? It's so intriguing to me that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's your starting point. 
How's it possible? What do I do? How do I tackle this command? What does this even look like? Love your neighbor as yourself. He recognizes an innate ability that we have a natural. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to work at it. There's things that come natural to us based on how we're created. This innate ability to love ourselves. And he capitalizes on that because we all understand it. We know what it's like to love ourselves. We've been doing it our whole lives. And not always giving it a lot of thought. As a matter of fact, we were created that way. And I'll qualify it because some of you might be, self-love is a terrible thing. No, self-love can be done right. Otherwise, why would Jesus say the way I want you to love your neighbors is is as you love yourself? There's something good in there to be redeemed. We were created to love ourselves, to care for ourselves, to appreciate ourselves, to know what we want. Now, where it went wrong is when sin entered in and our sin nature uh, deviates the kind of things that we should be loving about ourselves, the kind of things that we should be pursuing. But it's perfectly natural for us to want to love ourselves or take care of ourselves. I mean, we're, we're all planning. We're all we all have a place to live for the most part or we're looking for a place. We have food in the pantry. That's loving yourself, making sure you you're nourished. Uh, we try to accumulate for ourselves friends. Everybody likes friendship, fellowship. That's a part of what it means to be human, to relate in those areas and family. We want to try to accumulate for ourselves uh, some kind of Family network. We want to uh, feel love. That's an important thing. So we're looking for ways to love ourselves by accumulating the things that make us happy, comfortable and and good, pleasant. Uh, we, we want our lives to be meaningful, right? Do you ever hear somebody? I just want my life to count for something. I want it. I want people to know I was here. Why would you even say that? Because you love yourself. You want to be appreciated. You want it to have meaning and significance. All those things are innate and they are good. And most of the time we are either, we are um, trying to gain happiness or decrease pain in our lives, decrease unhappiness. One different ways to look at it. It's what we are often diligent at doing. So Jesus says, start with what's already there. It's a human trait. Some may say, but what about for those that don't love themselves? What about those that have gotten to a point in their lives where they loathe themselves? They disrespect themselves and they'll tell you, I hate myself. I hate myself and I want to destroy myself. There's no good in me. There's nothing redeemable. I don't even think I want to exist anymore. You're telling me that they love themselves? Is that self-love? Well, I think it could be argued, yes. That no matter what way you look at it, it comes natural for us to love ourselves. We just manifest it sometimes in positive ways and sometimes in negative ways. And thinking about for a minute, even someone that loathes themselves and looks at life and I don't like the way life treated me and, and, and it hurts And I feel hopeless and all I see is darkness, not even a ray of light. They're consumed with that. But what is that? It's to be consumed with self. I can't get my mind off of how much I hurt. I can't get my mind off of how painful life is and how hopeless it is. And I'm caught up in it. I'm even willing, some would say, I'm even willing to end it. I don't even know what's on the other side. But to preserve myself, 
to love myself, I have to escape this pain. It's just another manifestation of self-love. If I really didn't care about myself at all, I really didn't like myself, I really had no care for myself, then would I be spending so much time thinking about myself and how bad life is? So self-love, it's a trait. And we either take it in the right direction or we take it in the wrong direction. It's either a negative expression of self-love or positive. And Jesus says, start there. You don't have to learn how to do this. You already know. You already have a running list in your head of how to love yourself. No matter what point of life you are in. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to live safely and wanting to have food in the cupboard. Matter of fact, when before the fall, God provided for us so well. Here, it's all yours. Everything but that one tree. Just don't eat that one tree, but the rest of it, not that one tree, but the rest of it. So it's it's okay for to, to desire shalom, to desire peace. It's okay that that you want to live in this neighborhood instead of this neighborhood because you're you're you fear for your kids lives in this neighborhood. These are things it's self-love. And it's good and it's right. Most of the time, well, some of the time to want to escape violence. Uh, to rather live in a happy place, in a place that's always in upheaval. We want that, uh, in a sense, the original blessing that creation came into existence with. It was just all good. Everything was in harmony. We want our souls and our minds and our hearts to be in harmony. And so we're looking for ways to make that happen. The problem is evil entered. And now we want to find these things without God. That's the problem. The same things are out there and the same desires is there. But when we try to seek them and find them without God, well, that's where we get into big trouble. And that's where we walk away having tried everything the world has to offer, still unsatisfied and discontent. We don't want to be dependent on God. We don't want to be dependent on other things. I don't want to have to wait for God to give me what I think and deserve right now. I've already kind of have it all figured out how my life should go and what I need. This pride, pride cuts us off from God. Pride wants to find the satisfaction and the glory without God to do it on its own. Only care for ourselves without having to think of others. That's the passion of sin. And we're unwilling to see God as the source of all we need and all we are. And that's when self-love takes the wrong turn. So pride is the pursuit of happiness outside of God. Anywhere but in the glory of God and the good of other people. See, that's why this, that's why this command is so radical, even to believers. And it shakes us if you really think about what Jesus is saying here when it comes to loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves just brings it so close to home and it can be so convicting and so threatening now because immediately I think you mean I have to if I have to love you like I love myself. Wow. <laughs> I gotta spend a lot of time on you. I have to give you a lot of thought, a lot of planning, plan out your meals, plan out your pleasures, plan out your work schedule and 
and things that you would like said and the building up and the compliments and the family. I mean, all of this. And I just will feel very threatened. You, th- this makes me feel threatened for Jesus to say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I really love myself. And then I think, OK, well, then how does this work? Because if, if it's OK to love myself in a good way. Then I have to take time away from myself and give it to my neighbors. And so then I just become nothing and I fear for my existence and I fear for my success and my meaning. And if all I'm doing is is using my skills or my talents, my time or whatever it is that I have to prosper you, then obviously I'll become nothing. How does that all fit together? How does that work? I'm not even really loving myself because I'm taking care of you. And I thought loving myself was taking care of me to some extent. How can I do both? So it, it, it reaches into our core and challenges us in our thinking. Here's what John Piper has to say about this. He says, I'm overwhelmed with this. I say it. It's overwhelming because it seems to demand that I tear the skin off of my body, wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am that person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety and for my own health and my own success and happiness, I I now feel for that other person as though he were me. It's absolutely staggering, this commandment. If this is what it means... And something unbelievably powerful and earth shaking and reconstructing and overturning and upending will have to happen in our souls. Something supernatural. Something well beyond what self-preserving, self-enhancing, self-exalting, self-esteeming, self-advancing human beings like John Piper can do on their own. I would say something so supernatural will have to happen in me that it will remove or reverse the process of the curse of sin that's on my heart. So that I am thinking and feeling and desiring that which is right and that which will truly satisfy my soul because my sin nature brings me to places that offer promises that can't deliver. Because any happiness and any glory and any satisfaction sought without God only is a dead end. We were created for God, and I would add, to enjoy God. Pleasure is part of it. Very important. God wants us to take pleasure in Him. To be threatened by this command, really, is just to reveal how our own hearts have already been tainted by sin and believe that which is not true. And hang our lives on that, which is not true, because what we tell ourselves is I can't be spending all my time with all these people. I got my own life to build. And it's a miserable experience to watch you prosper on my dime when I'm over here and I have nothing. Now, where's the joy in that? It seems like an impossible thing. And it is without the power of God, because what the power of God does and right thinking about the right God God says, oh, no, the satisfaction that you are, that you think you're getting or that you're getting in self-pursuit isn't real satisfaction. If you want real joy, then take that love 
and put it towards another. And want their happiness. And then your soul will swell with a joy that you've never experienced before. What happens is the gospel, the good news comes into us and changes the way we think. And it changes even our desires so that now I am happy for you to have this thing that I work so hard to get. Because I take more pleasure in you having it and watching you enjoying it than me enjoying it myself. As parents, we do this a lot of times with our kids and don't even think twice about it. We make sacrifices because we love them. And I would much rather, and we say things like, well, I would, if I could take this sickness from you, I would. I don't want to see you like this. And within this thing called God and these commandments and the gospel is this transformation that takes place where we actually, rather than feeling threatened and shrinking at great loss, are overjoyed that others can be built up at our expense. Of course, you know that's what Christ did on the cross, right? For the joy that was set before Him. How could such a bloody, brutal death be enjoyable because He knew the happiness and the satisfaction and the salvation and the redemption that that sacrifice would bring to so many, even those that we sit side by side with today. What a commandment. What a riveting thing. And some of us say, well, wait a minute. I thought the gospel was all about self-denial. I mean, even Jesus says, was in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take off his cross daily. Every day you got to kill yourself. Every day you got to be miserable and bloody and bleeding every day. That's what it means to follow Christ. Hold on. What is to be crucified? What is to be denied? The good things that God created? Or the flesh? It's a battle. The things that are to be denied and suppressed are the, are the sinful tendencies because of our sin nature. It's the flesh. Those are the things we have to put to death. And by the way, in putting them to death, cause the true flowers to grow by getting getting rid of the weeds. And then we just are that much more joyful. Putting flesh to death just creates more joy because the gifts of the spirit and and the fruits of the spirit. Now they have more growing room. It's a pleasure. It's a joy to do these things. And loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves can get to that point where you can't be. It doesn't even matter what your circumstances are out there. Now, maybe you only have three pinto beans in a bowl for your dinner and you don't even know where breakfast is coming from. And you are overjoyed because you're so close with God. You love him so much. It doesn't matter if you're here or if he takes you up there. It doesn't matter. You just are so close to God. You know it. And then, sure, if, you, if your neighbor needs those three beans, so be it. I'd rather you enjoy them than myself. Because it would bring me more pleasure to know that you have them. It's an incredible thing what the gospel intends to do with our hearts, isn't it? To twist us all up. But actually set us back in our proper shape. So now we're thinking... It's okay. It's okay if I want my garden to thrive, but I want my neighbors to thrive too. 
It's okay if I want my kids to bring home good grades, but I want my neighbor's kids to bring home good grades too. You see how it begins to manifest itself or work itself out? I really, really would like to, you know, to get a raise, but I want my neighbors to have one too. I want, I, I really, I really want my son to come home from the war in one piece, but I want my neighbor's son to come home in one piece too. I want it for everybody. Not just myself. I expand my thinking so that I care about others. And it's the first commandment, Jesus says, unequivocally, it's the first commandment that even makes the second commandment possible. To find satisfy, satisf- satisfaction in Christ. And the way that we can love God in the first commandment is by loving others. Because God wants to be known. He wants his goodness to be manifested. And God can't be known if we're locked up somewhere. Because the transforming power can't be seen by others. Matthew 5.16 often gets spoken in here. Is that he wants people to see our good works. Why? So they can give glory to their father in heaven. That's one of the ways that God gets glory by letting our light shine. So loving others brings glory to the God that we love. Now, one of the purposes of the church, this church, any church, is to make visible the invisible God. Where the hands, it's been said, where the feet. And Jesus himself says, somebody's thirsty. You gave him a glass of water. You did it for me. You did it in my name. You represented me. The world gets to know me through you. Through your love. And I would add that that love in this day and age might need to be a step up than what the world offers. Might to be might need to be a little more radical and out of step, countercultural than what the world offers. It might mean personal sacrifice. Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our mind and our Neighbor as herself. What does that look like in your life right now? You think about those that are in your sphere of influence. Are you loving them like you love yourself? What does it look like for our church corporately? How is the love of God being manifested through us as a church? How visible is the written word in our deeds and our actions? Because it certainly matters to God. So loving God is where we start and it never ends. We want to be a community. We want to be individuals and a community that uh, has a love that stands out. Has a love that's noticeable. So it's not an overstatement to say that the whole story of creation and redemption and all of God's plans just hangs on these two great commands of love. They encapsulate the purpose of God. That God brought it all into creation, what? That it would love Him and that humanity would love each other. Love Him. And love each other. That's a great command. Foremost command. 
And then, not to spend much time on this because, well, we're about out of time, aren't we? But briefly, so, so the leaders have been coming to Jesus with impossible questions that there's no way he can get out of and he gets out of them. And of course, he gets out of this one. But then he gives a, offers a question of his own. While the Pharisees in verse 41 were gathered, Jesus asked them a question saying, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, sons of David. And he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if then David calls him Lord, how is it? How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So this question put an end to their question. And briefly, what is Jesus getting at? They had in their mind what the Messiah would look like, and they knew he was going to be the son of David. And they wanted a, a king like David to put a sword in one hand and, and ride into battle and defeat the enemies and be king of Israel and reestablish it. In peace and harmony. And Jesus did not fit that bill at all. We also know that they asked this question about the great command. Now, who is probably doing one of the worst jobs at fulfilling these two commands, but these Jewish leaders? And then Jesus poses this question. Food for thought. If David, if the Messiah is David's, just David's son, then how can David call him also his Lord? How does that fit in your worldview? How does that fit into your understanding of Scripture? In other words, could it be that there's more to this Messiah and kingship and reign and rule of the one that God will send than you have considered? They're so close-minded, they didn't get it. But Jesus is revealing himself by that question as the Savior literally sent by God. He is not just the son of David. He is the Lord that David was speaking to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in that psalm. The beautiful thing. Christ is God. Believe in him. Put your faith in him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind. And you will be satisfied through Christ in God. The law and the gospel. When we hear God's word, it's doing one of two things. For those that refuse to obey, it condemns us. And for those that believe in the gospel, all it does is liberate us and set us free from sin and condemnation. We have a lot of work to do in this kingdom outpost, a lot to accomplish and exalting God and edifying the saints and evangelizing the lost. And it begins with setting our heart on the God that we say that we worship. And oozing out of us as we love one another. May God bless the preaching of his word.